You know, often people think that the resurrection of Jesus was the finish line for Jesus, that that was his end goal. But actually, the resurrection was only the beginning. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, and I don't know if you've really thought about this passage this way. Several years ago, we took a look at this passage in depth, but I want you to see something with me today. Let's take a look. 1 Corinthians 15, I passed on to you what was most important. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. So my question when I read this passage this week, my question was, why was it so important for so many followers to see the resurrected back to life Jesus? Why was it so important that Jesus made sure they saw him? I believe it's because what would happen after his resurrection was so very important. And that's why we're stepping into this series. I want you to get this down on the top of your outline there. This is key for all that we're going to talk about over the next several weeks. The resurrection was only the beginning of what Jesus is still doing. The resurrection was only the beginning of what Jesus is still doing. Now, I know grammatically that sentence really doesn't work right, but I want you to get the fact that Jesus is still doing something, and he started it at the resurrection. And that's what we're going to talk about even today. Chapter, three, uh, chapter 23 rather, of Luke's narrative, he talks about how Jesus um, was, was hung on a cross, and around noon, darkness fell over the entire area until about 3 p.m., And in Luke 23, verse 6, it says that then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last breath. So Jesus dies on the cross. His followers, his friends, they're watching from a distance. And then later in the story, a man who was on the Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin, approaches the Roman governor Pilate, And he asked for the body of Jesus. Take a look, 23, verse 52. Joseph went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Then he took the body down from the cross and he wrapped it in a long sheet of linen cloth and laid it in a new tomb that had been carved out of a rock. This was done late on Friday afternoon, the day of preparation, as the Sabbath was about to begin. As the body was taken away, the women from Galilee followed and saw the tomb where his body was placed. That's key because we're going to see in just a minute why. Then they went home and they prepared spices and ointments to anoint his body. This, there was no embalming in, in those days. And so spices were used to take care of a lot of the odor and the smell of a dead body. And it says, but, the time they were, but by the time they were finished, the Sabbath had begun. So they couldn't do anything. And so then Luke tells us in Luke 24 verse 1 that very early on Sunday morning, The women went to the tomb and they found the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of Jesus. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. And the men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Remember what he told you that he must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and that he would rise again on the third day. And then the women remembered what Jesus had told him, told them, said to them. 
So they rushed back from the tomb to tell his 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. And we follow the narrative, and it says that on the same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. What same day was that? The same day that Jesus was discovered missing from the tomb. The same day that the women went and found that the body of Jesus wasn't in the tomb. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. They were hoping to make sense of it all. And these two, they talked and discussed these things. And Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. Now, I don't know about you, but I stop when I read that every time. And I think, what would it be like to be walking along and have Jesus join you on the journey? Hmm. Jesus asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk? What are you guys talking about? What's up? Then one of them said, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all these things that have happened here the last few days. What's up with you, man? Do you live in a cave? Well, actually, he did for three days. But anyway, that's a whole other story, right? And haven't, you, haven't you watched the news? Dude, haven't you been online? I mean, it's been, it's been all over Twitter. I mean, Instagram is covering it. I think they didn't recognize Jesus. They, they, they didn't recognize Jesus for a couple of the same reasons that that so often we don't recognize him in our life at times. I don't think they recognize Jesus because they weren't looking for Jesus in the situation. I think it's on your outline. You don't have to fill it in, but I just want you to think about it for a moment. They weren't looking for Jesus in this situation. I mean, come on, think about it. They had no reason to look for Jesus. Why? Because he was dead. They saw him die on a cross. They saw him put in a grave Jesus was gone. Why would you keep looking for Jesus? And similarly, we have a way of shutting out Jesus in our lives. If we're not careful, we have a tendency to go through our days as if Jesus isn't even there. Another reason I think they didn't recognize Jesus is because they didn't believe what Jesus had said to them. Multiple times, on multiple occasions, Jesus told them, I will be crucified and I will rise back to life on the third day. Multiple times he told them. They had made the connection of what Jesus had told them and what had just, just happened. They, they didn't, don't miss this, they didn't lack the evidence because the evidence was all there. They didn't lack the evidence. You know what they lacked? They lacked faith. If you've ever experienced disappointment or loss, you relate to this, right? I mean, you, you know what this feels like. I know what this feels like. Things are too hard. Things are too impossible, too overwhelming. I'm, I'm just too sad. I, I'm too disappointed. I'm too confused. Jesus, I can't get my mind around what you've said. I can't believe what you have said to me because I'm too affected by this circumstance. And one of them says to Jesus, you must be the only person who hasn't heard about all these things. And Jesus responds, what things? And they say, the things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, he was a prophet who did powerful miracles and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. I mean, they were saying to Jesus when he spoke, it was like God was speaking to us. 
When he showed up, everything changed. Blind eyes were opened in front of us. Deaf ears were healed in front of us. The lame walked in front of us. He fed multitudes. He walked on water. He calmed a storm. He spoke and a man was raised from the dead. Jesus of Nazareth was so powerful in what he did and what he said. But our leading priests and our religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and they crucified him. We have hoped, we had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Do you feel the emotion? Of their words. We, we had hoped. For centuries prophecy had been given that one day God would send the Messiah. That he would be the savior of the world. And as they, the people of Israel, had been hoping and praying and wishing, Jesus from Nazareth showed up. And this guy, <laughs> this guy was unlike any other guy they had ever seen. And they thought to themselves, could he be the one? Maybe he is the one. We think he is the one. We hope he is the one. And they put all their faith into believing that Jesus was the Messiah. And guess what? Three days ago. They watched him be crucified on a cross. And he was buried. And their dreams and their hopes were buried with him. We've invested our hope in Jesus. And now our hope is gone. They realized this isn't turning out the way we thought it would. And the reality is, some of us, we know this. Some of us are there. And we say, I had hoped, but now you realize what I hoped for isn't happening. Maybe you went off to college and you thought everything's going to be great and you discover that it isn't anything of what you planned for. Maybe you got that job, but it isn't anything of what you expected it to be. Maybe you've been dating someone and things didn't work out. Maybe you thought we're going to be happily married forever, but the happily isn't the way that you would describe what it's like right now. Maybe you thought this would be a great season of life. And then one of your parents dies or gets Alzheimer's or your spouse or your child is diagnosed with something horrible or you get laid off or your car breaks down. You are hoping to be farther along, but you can't get out of debt. You are searching for a job, but you can't get anywhere. Trying to enjoy your job, but facing a terrible work environment. You are trying to love your kids, but you're encountering disobedience and tantrums. And you are in a season right now where you're saying, this isn't what I hoped for. That's where these guys were. But they continue. And they tell Jesus. Then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning and they came back 
with an amazing report. They said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who told them that Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to see, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. They told these events, but they couldn't explain the empty tomb. And so Jesus takes over the conversation. He says to them, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And by the time they were nearing Emmaus, where they were going... And the end of their journey, Jesus acted as if he was going on, but they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. So he went home with them. And this is where another question pops into my mind in this narrative. Why would Jesus pretend like this? Why would he act as if he were going on? And the only conclusion that I came up with was maybe he was trying to give them space to respond to him. Maybe he was giving them a chance to open up. I mean, friends, Jesus never barges into our lives. He always leaves room for us to respond, an opportunity to welcome him into our lives. And just like what Jesus had done before, look what happens in verse 30. As they sat down to eat, he, Jesus, took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and he gave it to them. Hmm. When you think of Jesus, what do you think about, what, do you, what is he doing? What do you see Jesus doing? When you think about Jesus, right now in your mind, when you think about Jesus, what do you see him doing? When many people think of Jesus, they see him on the cross. Or they envision him teaching a crowd, or praying, doing a miracle. Some people see Jesus on a throne in heaven. More than any other writer in the New Testament, though, the Apostle Luke sees Jesus doing one thing. When you read through the account, the gospel account of Luke, you see Jesus doing this one thing more than anything else. Jesus, to Luke, does the most Jesus thing of all when he eats with friends. Huh. Isn't that interesting? I mean, throughout the gospel writing, Luke presents Jesus eating with people, eating with friends, ordinary meal infused with significance because of the people that are gathered there. He's at the table with sinners and tax collectors. In fact, Luke includes a verse that no other gospel writer includes where, he, where Jesus says, I have been categorized as someone who is a drunkard, a drunkard and a glutton who only eats with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is saying that about himself. He has been identified as someone who just spends his time eating with people. He shared meals with, with powerful people. To Luke, eating is a radical act because it breaks down barriers. We don't have this so much in our, in our culture. You know why? Because we have fast food. And because we have fast food, we think that food should be fast all the time. I mean, come on, let's just be real. When you go to a sit-down restaurant, at least that's what we call it in our house, a sit-down restaurant, don't you expect your food to come out quicker than it does? 
I mean, in any restaurant that you go to, aren't you like on a timeline? And you're thinking to yourself, they're not going to get a very high tip if they don't get that food out here right now. Or they haven't refilled my water in like three minutes. We're, we're on this fast pace. Food, eating, a meal has become this fast service, this fast food experience. But in their culture, sitting down to eat was relationship building. In fact, it was more about the people than it was about the food. Hmm. It's too bad we've lost that. I mean, I, I grew up in a home where every night we had dinner as a family, and there were just the three of us. I'm an only child. There was just the three of us. And my mom and dad and me, we shared what our life was like. We shared what we were experiencing in our world. Even as a teenager, even though I hated my parents' questions about what was going on in my world, we shared life around the dinner table. I got busy in school and stuff, but we, my mom still pushed. We, we, we gathered around a table at least three or four times a week because they wanted to have contact with me and me with them. It was about building relationships. That's what it is to Luke. That's what it was to Jesus. I mean, it, to Luke, it's not Jesus' teaching that opens their eyes. It's, it's sharing a meal at an ordinary table that becomes transformative in a, peop, in a person's life. It, it shows the kingdom of God in a way that's never been presented. I mean, when Jesus says the kingdom of God is here, and he sits down at a table with you, man, he's, he's telling us that God is close, that his name, Emmanuel, that he was named, he, he's here. And it says in our text that Jesus took the bread and blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. Do you know what this is? This is almost word-for-word word duplicate of what Jesus did when he gathered with his disciples in the upper room for what's known as the Last Supper. Almost word-for-word. Word. So, Jesus is doing the most Jesus thing of all to Luke. He's sharing a meal. And guess what? Everything changes. Because in verse 31 it says, suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. It was, it was in sharing the meal. It wasn't in being instructed and being taught all the way through that seven mile journey. It wasn't that. It was in the sitting down at the meal and Jesus breaking the bread and giving it to him. That all of a sudden they went, it's him. And guess what happened? He disappeared. He disappeared immediately in that moment. There is no way to explain why they recognized him in that moment other than the fact that Jesus was doing the most Jesus thing of all. And all of us all of us know this kind of experience where we've experienced times where we don't see Jesus in the midst of what is taking place in our lives. And then all of a sudden, we become aware of the fact that, wait a minute, whoa, wait, Jesus is in this right now. Jesus is here with me. Jesus is doing something. 
Something happens and we see Jesus and it says, they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us and within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. I bet in a full tilt run back seven miles to Jerusalem. And it says there they found the 11 disciples and the others who had gathered with them. Then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they had recognized him as he was what? Breaking the bread. And look at this. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself suddenly was standing there among them. Look at this question. Jesus says, why are your hearts filled with doubt? All kinds of evidence here, but you have no faith. You're not believing that I'm with you. You're not believing that I've done what I said would happen. Why do you have doubt? And then look what he does. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see it's really me. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. Still they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. And he, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he ate it as they watched. In that culture, in that day, if someone was eating something, that was a sign that they were alive. In fact, if you back up to the times when people were raised from the dead... Uh, in scripture, it emphasizes that they would go and eat something. It was kind of a proof that they were truly alive. Oh, they're not just a ghost. They're eating something, right? That's what he did here. He said, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. It was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that his message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. Wait, what was that word? Be beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of all these things. Stay here in the city until. Do, do, do you guys see this, this language that Jesus is using? It, it's beginning in Jerusalem. And I want you to stay here until. What's he saying? He's saying something's going to happen from this point on. Something's going to happen. We're not done yet. It's only beginning. Wow. Look what he says. Stay here in this city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. Then Jesus led them to Bethany and lifting his hands to heaven, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven. <laughs> so they returned to Jerusalem. I, I, I laugh at this because... I mean, Jesus is, it's like he's building this up and this is going to happen and you're going to be, you're going to receive the power of the Holy Spirit and all this. Come outside, guys. See ya. And he goes. And they're watching him. What do we do now? Well, let's go back to Jerusalem. That's what he said. Okay. And they just go back, right? I mean, that's what it says. So that, this one little line. So they returned to Jerusalem. 
And Luke continues the story. In Acts 1, look what it says. When they returned to Jerusalem, they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. Here are the names of those who were present. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon, and Judas. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. Okay, question, why were they gathered together? Not, not what were they doing. Why were they gathered together? Because Jesus told them to. Right? He told them, go back to Jerusalem, stay here in Jerusalem until something happens. Gather together. Why? Because Jesus wasn't done. The resurrection was only the beginning of what Jesus is doing. Friends, Jesus is doing something bigger. I've seen it in my life so many different times, but probably none as great as, as the time I experienced in my life in 1985. Some of you probably weren't even alive in 1985. That's all right. Um, but in 1985, my wife and I, we were living in Fremont, California, in the NorCal area. And I had applied for ministerial credentials with the Assemblies of God. There was only one time a year that credentials were granted to people who were applying for it. So after submitting all of the paperwork, which was a load of paperwork, and passing an exam, which I was really sweating it out, I met with a guy who would give the first stage of approvals needed for me to progress in getting my credentials. I had all of the necessary paperwork done. I don't, don't, don't miss this. I had all of my schooling done. I was already serving in a church. This should be a slam dunk. I should get my ministerial credentials just automatically, right? Wrong. Went into this meeting and basically this guy said to me, I wasn't ready to have ministerial credentials because I didn't play the guitar. You're, you're kind of chuckling in the way that I chuckled inside. And I basically was wanting to say to him, what? I, I didn't, out of respect, but what? Are you kidding me? Things didn't turn out anything of what I had hoped for. I didn't understand. I was mad. I was angry. Asked my wife. I was ready to quit, to throw it in, say, forget this. Why, do, why would I even want to go down this line if this is the way I'm going to be treated? Ever been there before? So my disappointment and frustration was there. But I continued seeking Jesus. I said, Lord, I'm so angry. And I don't understand this. But I know you have a plan. And I'm going to trust you. And I continued seeking his plan. I called my wife this week to confirm this timeline on this. Six, I'm sorry, nine months later. Nine months of this 
confusion and frustration. Didi was called one day to come and help at a nearby church, away from our home church. Um, Didi was on the rotation of you know, pianists pianist in the church, in our home church, and, and um, she was available, and so our music pastor had given her name to a church that needed help because their pianist was unable to play that particular Sunday. And so we went, and we actually, Didi and I actually ended up leading worship for them, for this church. And so we come into about Wednesday of the next week, and this church, the pastor calls again. Said, I just found out our pianist can't make it this week. Are you available again a second Sunday, Didi? And literally, Didi's on the phone. And I don't know what it was. Maybe it was desperation. Maybe it was crazy jump. I don't know what it was that came over me, but I said to her, ask him if he needs a youth pastor. And she's on the phone. She's like, you know, how wives can do sometimes. And, and so I said, ask him if he needs a youth pastor. I'm getting louder. She can hear me, obviously. She's I'm not going to ask him that. Quit it. I said, ask him. And then the pastor on the phone said, is there a problem? And Didi said, my husband wants to know if you need a youth pastor. And Pastor Ramachola said, wow, I've actually been approved by the board this week to seek out a part-time youth pastor. When you guys come on Sunday, lead worship for us, let's go to lunch and let's talk. So, we talked. A door opened up for me to be a youth pastor, get this, a worship leader, and preach on Sunday nights without credentials. I served for two years in that role, making 100 bucks a week. My wife, by the way, was running their children's ministries and Sunday school program too, all for 100 bucks a week. It wasn't about the money. We wanted to serve. And Jesus was using us even without credentials. And I learned under probably what I would consider one of the most caring pastors I've ever worked for. You know what this opened up? This opened up a door for me to obtain my ministerial credentials. When I went after it again, the guy who told me that I needed to play guitar was no longer the guy over it. And now I was a youth pastor, worship leader, was preaching on Sundays, Sunday nights, and he said, you got it. So I got credentials after that time period without even learning to play guitar. That amazing. And this opened up the door for me then to be hired full-time as worship leader, youth pastor at another church in Livermore, developing me in, in leadership and in, and in vision casting. It opened up a door for me when this pastor came into my office there after being there for about 18 months, and he said, I want you now to become executive pastor of our church. I want you to oversee all of the staff and all of the operations of our church, our school, and our preschool. I want you to oversee all of it. That opened up a door for me to become ordained with the Assemblies of God. 
1991, which then opened up doors for me to come here as lead pastor in 1992. And 27 years later, here we are. I, I want you to see something. All of what took, my, took place in my life, which I call the pressure cooker of my life, took place in a seven-year period of time. And all of it, Jesus was walking with me and orchestrating every event that took place even though I didn't know he was doing it, even though I was frustrated, even though I was confused, even though I was angry at times. I still kept seeking him and he still kept orchestrating everything that took place. I, I didn't know it in 1985 when my hopes were crushed, when I was frustrated and angry and confused. I didn't know that Jesus had something bigger for me to be involved in than just getting my minister's credentials. And I'm learning that as, as I face everything in real time, sometimes it's hard to see it. But if I'm following Jesus, get this down. Jesus is always doing something bigger than what I'm seeing. He's always doing something bigger than what you're seeing. Friends, don't put Jesus in a box. Whatever you're going through right now in your life, you got to understand that Jesus is doing something bigger than just that little event. And I'm sorry that I call it little, but in my life, it was just little in 1985. Little did I know that he had such big plans for me that he'd move me all the way to San Diego. I swore I would never live in Southern California when I lived in NorCal. I don't know if you guys felt that way. I always had the image of Orange County, and I never wanted to live in Orange County. I, I didn't want the traffic. I didn't want all the people. I didn't want all the, you know, and I'm like, I'm never going to SoCal, ever, ever. I'll, I'll go to Arizona before I go to SoCal. I'm not kidding. I, I said that. And when God began to work things out, it was him. And now I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. Jesus is always doing something bigger than what you're seeing. It's true. Look what the Apostle Paul tells us. 1 Corinthians 2, I love this passage. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. I believe this. I've experienced this. If you are following Jesus, Jesus is always doing something bigger than what you're seeing. How do I know that? I see it when I read the New Testament, especially Acts. We're going to get into this in the next several weeks. The group gathered in that room. They had no idea what Jesus was doing. I mean, right? The two from Emmaus were telling the story and then... Jesus appears in the room. They had no idea what Jesus was doing, how big his plans were for them. In the same way, here we are, guess what? Gathered together in a room. <laughs> and you and I are here for a purpose. 
You may have thought, I'm just going to church today. No. Jesus is doing something bigger in your life. And this could be the beginning of it. Jesus is changing us. He's changing our church. Would you bow your heads with me?